This is episode 82 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Three Artists and Their Day Jobs. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I want to talk today about artists and their day jobs. And not just being a barista at a Starbucks or a waiter where your commitment to your job is pretty much limited to the hours that you work and otherwise your faculties are pretty intact and uh, your resources are pretty well maintained for the creative work that you want to work on. So I'm talking about people who have pretty important and consuming jobs. I was a privilege to sit in on a conversation between a couple of writers uh, some time ago, and one of them was saying that she maintains her job as an accountant because something has to pay the bills. And another writer said to her, oh, you should just follow your passion, and the money will come. And the first one, the accountant said, "Mm, that's not exactly been my experience, that if I just do what I want, that money will miraculously fall from the sky. And the second writer said, oh, yes. So they proceeded to have this conversation in front of me. And I was reminded of a Venn diagram, which I ran across at some point uh, a few years ago, And it's a Venn diagram with three circles. And one of the circles says what you enjoy doing. So all the activities that you like and enjoy go into that circle. And then there's a circle that's partially overlapping that is labeled what you're good at. So there may be things that you're good at that you enjoy, and that's where the circles overlap. There may be activities that you're also good at, but you don't enjoy. And so those activities would fall outside of the overlapping section of the two circles. And then there's a third circle, which overlaps the other two. And it's uh, labeled what people will pay for. So there are certain activities that you enjoy that people will pay you for. There are certain activities that you're good at that people will pay you for. And then the sweet spot in the middle are those activities that you're good at, that you can be paid for, and that you enjoy doing. And it seems to me that this is a reasonable approach to this question of follow your passion and money will fall, but instead taking a more practical view and really a more nuanced view of how you're going to make money and still do what you want. I want to start first with Toni Morrison because I think her quote-unquote day job is pretty typical for writers, and I want to present an example first that I think is very practical and very common. And also, you can see that there will be synergies between her work as a writer and her day jobs as teacher and editor. So we'll start with some basics. Uh, uh, Toni Morrison is still alive. She's 88 now. 
And she was raised in Ohio and went to Howard University in Washington, D.C. when she went to college. She got a bachelor's in English, so again, very relevant to her ultimate occupation or her artistic occupation, and then went on to get a master's of arts from Cornell. She taught uh, for a little while in Houston and then went back to Howard University to teach where she taught there for seven years. And that's where she met her husband. So to get the timeline straight here, she graduated from Cornell in 1955, uh, went to Houston for a couple years, that puts her at 57, and then she went to Howard University where she taught for seven years. So that puts her up to 1962. Uh, She got married in 1958, and she was pregnant with her second son when she and her husband divorced in 1964. Okay, so now put yourself in her shoes. She uh, has already had one child. She's now divorced, and it's 1964. Now what's she going to do? So she went to work as an editor, which was uh, the textbook division of Random House in Syracuse. And then eventually she moved to Random House. Well, two years later, I should say, she moved to Random House in New York City, where she became their first black woman senior editor in the fiction department. And uh, so she started working on a lot of other people's work, right? And then in 1970, uh, she published The Bluest Eye, which was her book. Uh, That's when she was 39. And interestingly, you know, the, the book originally was not that noted, Um, But gradually, people caught on to it, and one of the people who noticed it was Robert Gottlieb. Uh, At that time, he was at Knopf. I will just recommend his book, Avid Reader, if you're interested in the work of editing. I really think it's a fabulous book, and it's it's almost a work of passion, right? You can tell how much he was excited by the work of being an editor, and then the many, many writers... Uh, whose lives he influenced and uh, ameliorated, really. All right, so here we are back with uh, with Toni Morrison. She then published her second novel in 1975. Okay, so imagine this, right? You're single, you've got two kids, you're working a full-time job, you've published this first book in 1970, you published another book in 1975, and somewhere I saw a quote by her saying the only way to do this, to have kind of these, you know, multiple lives is to get up early in the morning. Then she published her third novel, The Song of Solomon, in 1977. So now she's three books in. And then her next novel, A Tar Baby, was in 1981. Okay, finally, after this many books, right, she decided to give up publishing and uh, decided to work pretty much full-time on writing. She did, though, do some more teaching after that at SUNY and also at Rutgers. And then she uh, got a chairship at SUNY. Uh, She wrote a play. And then in 1987, she published her most famous book, Beloved. So Beloved is actually the first of a trilogy. And the second part of that trilogy came out in 1992. It was titled Jazz. Um, that, that year, she also published her first book of literary criticism, and then she won the Nobel Prize in literature in 1993. 
Eventually, she published the third novel of that trilogy, uh, Paradise, which came out in 1997. And I'm going to stop there because at this point, she's in the stratosphere, right? She's won the Nobel Prize. She's already written many, many books. At this point, her kids are much older, and she doesn't have to have a day job uh, like so many beginning artists do. But it's interesting to see her trajectory and really how much work she had to do, right? I mean, she really put in the hours and the effort to produce that much work uh, during those early years of her career. Okay, I will mention one more thing about Morrison, and that's the Oprah effect. So after Beloved came out, Oprah Winfrey uh, decided to co-produce it to bring it to the screen, and Winfrey also stars as the main character. The movie was not successful at the box office. It was long and complicated and Perhaps it was considered too difficult to transfer to this to the screen. Janet Maslin, though, said in her review that it was uh, transfixing and a deeply felt adaptation. And then, of course, Oprah Winfrey went on to select many of Toni Morrison's books for her book club, which became uh, very popular. And that program really launched... Morrison into a household name and all those uh, sales that would go along with that. Uh, So over time, uh, Winfrey selected four of Morrison's novels over six years for the show. And of course, that uh, gave her a bigger sales boost even than winning the Nobel Prize did. Oprah said at one point, for all those who asked the question, Toni Morrison again, I say with certainty there would have been no Oprah's book club if this woman had not chosen to share her love of words with the world. And Morrison called the book club a, quote, reading revolution. Next, I want to talk about T.S. Eliot, that fabulous poet who wrote Uh, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and The Wasteland, my favorite, and also The Four Quartets. He also wrote uh, a bunch of plays, and he also won the Nobel Prize in Literature. I'll go ahead and uh, put that spoiler in there. He's a very interesting character, and you may have heard about his job because he did work for a while as a banker, which uh, people like to bring that up as, yeah, you know, T.S. Eliot, one of our greatest poets, worked as a banker. He uh, was raised in St. Louis and uh, was very influenced by Mark Twain's books about um, living alongside a big river. And he said at one point, it's self-evident that St. Louis affected me more deeply than any other environment has ever done. I feel that there is something in having passed one's childhood beside the big river, which is incommunicable to those people who have not. I consider myself fortunate to have been born there rather than in Boston or New York or London. He ended up going to Milton Academy in Massachusetts, which is a prep school, and then he went on to uh, study philosophy at Harvard and got a bachelor's in 1909 and then a master's the next year. Uh, He actually kind of sped through and did his BA in, in three years. Uh, He maybe wasn't the greatest student. He did get put on academic probation at Harvard, Uh, but he did encounter, you know, some very influential other writers, Arthur Rambeau and Paul Verlaine. 
and those influences definitely were reflected in his poetry. Uh, he then moved to Europe, and where he studied at the Sorbonne for a year or so, and met more interesting writers, and went back uh, to Harvard, and then got a scholarship to Merton College in Oxford in England, back in England in 1914. He was uh, going to take a summer program in Germany, but remember the time World War I had broken out, so he went to Oxford instead. He wrote to Conrad Aiken, of all people, about Oxford. I hate university towns and university people who are the same everywhere, with pregnant wives, sprawling children, many books, and hideous pictures on the walls. Oxford is very pretty, but I don't like to be dead. And he uh, escaped Oxford uh, very frequently to spend time in London, where he met Ezra Pound. And it will turn out that Ezra Pound is quite influential uh, in having him make connections. Uh, Yeah, so it's noted that he was seeing as little of Oxford as possible, instead spending lots of time in London with Ezra Pound and some other uh, modern artists whom the war has so far spared. And Ezra Pound showed him all around and introduced him to everybody. So in the end, Eliot didn't really stay at Merton. He only stayed there for a year. Okay, so he leaves Merton and went to work as a school teacher, a private school in London where he taught French and Latin. He also taught at a private state school. And to make a little extra money, he wrote book reviews and lectured at some evening extension courses. And then in 1917, he took a position at Lloyd's Bank in London, working on foreign accounts. And uh, somewhere around there, I I guess it was in 1920, then he met James Joyce. And they uh, didn't apparently like each other too much at the time, kind of young people questioning the other person's. Uh, qualities and abilities, but eventually the two became friends. Now, it was around this time that Ezra Pound and some of his other friends were questioning T.S. Eliot about why he was working in a bank, and allegedly uh, they offered him a stipend so that he would stop working at the bank and devote himself to writing full-time. It was while he was at the bank that he published The Wasteland. That probably convinced him that he was a notable writer worth uh, supporting and sponsoring. But allegedly T.S. Eliot said, no, why would I leave this good-paying job uh, for money that will surely run out when I can stay at my job and keep writing? Now, before T.S. Eliot took the job in banking, Ezra Pound had recommended to the poetry magazine editor, that she published the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And so he had written most of that poem when he was only 22. And then in 1922 is when he published uh, The Wasteland. So he had two very significant works under his belt before or while he was working at the bank. He did eventually leave the bank in 1925, Uh, to become a director in a publishing firm uh, where he took on some very important English poets like Ted Hughes, for example. So he did eventually turn to work that was more in line with what his uh, artistic endeavors were. 
But it is interesting to see what a pragmatic attitude that he have is, had, especially when he was given an opportunity to leave the bank uh, for funds raised by his fans and supporters. I've got a couple quotes here from T.S. Eliot, who I admit is one of my favorites that I want to share with you. And one of them is, Genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood, which for me certainly felt appropriate for the wasteland. And then another one he's got is kind of amusing. If you aren't in over your head, how do you know how tall you are? And one to take with you is success is relative. It is what we make of the mess we have made of things. I'll do one more quick one here. Richard Serra, who is a sculptor, uh, but not known to me. He's also still alive. He was born in San Francisco in 1938 and went to school at UC Berkeley, uh, ended up getting a bachelor's there, and then uh, studied art and uh, became very famous for really large art pieces. And perhaps appropriately, in order to fund some of his work, he created a company, a furniture removals business called Low Rate Movers. And he actually employed um, some other interesting artists, Philip Glass, who we'll talk about at some other point, and Spalding Gray. I don't know if you remember him. He's the writer and actor in Swimming to Cambodia, very interesting guy. Uh, life ended really tragically. Anyway, so back to Sarah. You might remember him because some of his uh, work became kind of controversial. One of them was a tilted arc, which was a really high arc of steel that he set up in the Federal Plaza in New York City. And there was controversy about it because uh, people in the building surrounding the plaza said that it was in the way. And there was a public hearing that said it should be moved, but Sarah argued that the sculpture was site-specific and couldn't go anyplace else. And he made this quote that I guess has become sort of famous and uh, saying, to remove the work is to destroy it. Eventually it was dismantled and put into a warehouse. Uh, anyway, he continued to do these large-scale steel structures throughout the world and became known for his arcs and spirals and ellipses, which, quote, engaged the viewer in an altered experience of space. Uh, one of the pieces that I'd actually heard of is Charlie Brown, which is a 60-foot-tall sculpture in the atrium at the new Gap headquarters in San Francisco. And then another one uh, that I was also familiar with is called Snake. It's a trio of sinuous steel sheets creating a curving path, and it's permanently located in the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, of all places. Anyway, kind of an interesting character that he works in these uh, large physical objects and also started a moving company. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. In keeping with the new year, we'll be changing our format somewhat as the show has evolved. We'll continue to address work-related problems, but in our second year, we'll be going beyond just an advice show to talk about work trends, labor laws, economics, interesting companies, as well as pranks, bad bosses, and more screw-ups at work. If you have a question about a work-related issue or a comment about the show, 
please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. And at that website, you can also sign up for The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, and get information about training programs, books, consulting sessions, articles, jokes, and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday and sometimes Friday. Tune in so you can hear more about trouble at work.